Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Hold your spot there. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're just looking at a passage of Scripture today. I'll explain a little bit more in just a moment. It's kind of a standalone message. At the end of this month, I'm planning on beginning a brand new series. You'll hear a little bit more about that uh, through the course of the next week or so. Uh, But today is just a standalone message. I don't say just that. It's a message that God, I think, put on my heart that um, I, I have a lot of room to grow in applying this message myself. So if you feel like I'm picking on you, right, just understand that, um, that I, there's such a need for me to live this out uh, in my own life as well. So Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. So th- today we're going to look at two verses in the Bible that I am fully confident and comfortable saying that uh, these two verses can ultimately be uh, the key to you having peace and uh, having, having harmony and all those good warm fuzzy words in your marriage, in your relationships, and in your interactions with other people. These two verses, I believe, are so powerful and they're so, uh, 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 if, if we apply them, they are so capable of taking all of those uh, uh, little discord issues in your marriage and just, for the most part, alleviating and eliminating them. Would you want to know those two verses if I told you that there were two verses that could do that? Probably so. These two verses are so powerful, I think they can also take all of the conflict and the issues that sometimes you have interpersonally with other people, friends, and other family members, and if these were just applied for the most part, that, that, that conflict would just fade away where these two verses are, are applied by those who are involved. They're that powerful. I would be willing to say that these two verses are so powerful as well that they can eliminate uh, pretty much all of the political ads that we see on television pretty much this time of year. Would you want to know what those two verses are? If I could tell you they would do that, probably so, right? These two verses we're going to find are verses probably for many of you, you're familiar with them, you've read through them. The book of Philippians is a pretty popular book of scripture, and it's going to be these two verses that they're not going to be brand new for a lot of you. For some of you, they will be, but they're not going to be brand new. The difficulty is that they don't come easily applied to life. In fact, I will go so far as to say that when we cover these two verses for you, it's going to be one of the most hard and one of the most difficult, one of the hardest things you've ever do is living these two verses out on a daily basis with consistency. They're very, very difficult to apply. But when we do, it's going to be worth it. They're going to cost you. If you go away today and you take the two verses we're going to focus on and you say, you know what, I'm going to live those out in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do my best to apply these to all of my relationships, my marriage, with my kids, with my grandkids, with my coworkers, with my friends, with my enemies, right, with strangers. I'm going to try to live these two verses out. I'm going to tell you, it's going to cost you and it's going to cost you a lot. But the reward is going to be far, far more worth it if you can do this consistently, and if you can do this ultimately uh, successfully in your life. And so we're going to get to these two verses in just a moment. And the cool thing is, is that it's free, right? You don't have to pay anything to learn this, that I believe, honestly, that if it's applied in your relationships on whatever level, it can take your relationship to a brand new place. It's that powerful. Many of you have been probably to this beloved, blessed restaurant called Chick-fil-A, I'm sure, Right? And when you walk into Chick-fil-A and you place your order and you order your number one with waffle fries, upsized with a sweet tea, and they give you your price and they say that'll be eight ninety eight or whatever it happens to be, and they hand you your, uh, you give them the, your uh, money or you swipe your card, they give you your receipt, what do you always say? You say, thank you. And in response, you hear them say, my pleasure. 
You then get your drink because at this beloved, blessed place called Chick-fil-A, they actually make your drink for you right there before you go to your seat. And they make your sweet tea for you, and they put that ice in there, and they put the top on it, and they hand it across the counter to you, and you take it, and you say thank you, only to hear from the other side, my pleasure. You go to your seat, and you've got a nice little colorful tower there to put on your table because they're going to bring your food to you. And you sit down, and you've got that little marker on your table, and it's got your Polynesian sauce in there. Moment of silence. It's got the Chick-fil-A sauce and all the other good stuff that's in there. And uh, they bring it to your table, and you look up with a smile, a little tear in your eye, and you say, thank you. And they say, my pleasure. You drop your napkin on the floor, and before you can reach, there they are. They pick up your napkin, and they hand it to you, and you say, wow, thank you. And they say, my pleasure. And on your way out, you turn and you wave to your new friends in the Chick-fil-A and you step off the curb and you fall down on the ground and they come to your rescue and they pick you up and they open your door and they vacuum out your car and you say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they say, my pleasure. And I'm convinced if a man in a mask went in with a weapon and said, give me all your chicken, put it in a basket, send it out with me and don't ask any questions. They would say, my pleasure. (laughs) It's just that kind of place. You know, the story goes, and I checked this out on a couple of different, a few different sites actually, that Truett Cathy, the founder, right, the originator of Chick-fil-A, that he was off on a trip one day, and uh, he was staying at a Ritz-Carlton, which is kind of a notch above the Motel 6, and he was staying at the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, at some point in that stay there, he said, thank you for something, and one of their staff said, my pleasure, and Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, was so struck by that, he was so taken aback by that, it caught him so much off guard that he decided, I'm going to take this back and implement this in all of my restaurants, And so he did that, and the rest is history, as they say. You can't go into that place without hearing the words, my pleasure. Now, our children's pastor, Jeremy Young, most of you know him, some of you don't. If you you don't, you're in for a blessing. It'll be our pleasure for you to meet Jeremy. And uh, he he has this great idea. I've never had the, the boldness to be able to do this. One day I will. But, but he says what he likes to do is when he goes to there, if he gets a refill or if he orders or something and they hand it to him, rather than saying thank you, he'll say, my pleasure. He said it totally throws them off whenever you do that, right? They're just like, whoa, that's not in the grid. doesn't work that way. And uh, I can see Jeremy doing that. And uh, so you may want to take that run with it if you want to have some fun, but not today because they're closed on Sunday. And so, uh, uh, but when you think about those words, my pleasure, here, here's the thing. True, Kathy recognized it. Uh, those who, who run the Chick-fil-A restaurants today still recognize it, so they still do it. But, but here's the thing. When somebody says, my pleasure, they're communicating a few different things to you. One, they're saying that you are important. And I don't want to overthink this, right? But, but kind of follow me on this, this, this track. That they're saying you're important. It's not just a flippant, oh, you're welcome. You know, it's, it's my pleasure. You're important. In other words, they even take it a little bit further than that, where they say, no, you are not just important. You're worth my effort. Right? I've done this for you. I have given you your refill. I've brought you your food. I've taken your order. I've done what you've asked of me. This has been my pleasure. You're worth my effort. In fact, you're worth my above and beyond effort. You are so worth my effort. This is what they're saying. You didn't even know this. They're saying, you are so worth my effort that I count it my very pleasure. Playing with little puppies, uh, going for long walks on the beach. Hey, those are nothing compared to it being my pleasure to give you your chicken sandwich. Right? You are my pleasure. I mean, those are powerful words. To the point to where this whole entire franchise, when you think about it, is built 
on those two words. If you ask, I mean, the whole, everybody in here, y'all lead out way too much. Everybody in here, when I asked you, what do they say you knew, right? My pleasure is what they're known for. We can take the slide down. I'm getting hungry. Um, it, it's, they're powerful. I mean, they're powerful words, but, but the reason they're powerful is because we live in a culture where it, it's everybody for himself, right? You got to look out for number one. That's sort of the mantra of the culture in which we live, especially in this country. You got to look out for number one. And wrapped up in that is you've got to do what it takes to either achieve or to uh, acquire or to accomplish or to get into your possession, whatever it is that you want. Now, there is a place for a good work ethic. Don't hear me incorrectly. There is a place for that. And there is a place where laziness has to be moved aside and where we have to apply good, honest, hard work. I'm not saying anything different than that. But we live in a country and in a culture where we sort of notch that up in the wrong direction to where every man, so to speak, every person is for themselves. And we live in a culture and we live in a world and we are people in this world where it comes very naturally to live life selfishly, doesn't it? You know, you, you get a group photo, let's say you get together with a group of friends and it's kind of a reunion, you hadn't seen each other and all the ladies get together and they go out and you haven't seen each other and everybody's in town at the same time and you take a group picture, it's a group of guys, maybe you're out on the golf course and it's your frat brothers or whatever, you know, and you know, hadn't seen each other in a long time and you get together, the, you know, 12, 15, 20 of you, you take a picture or maybe you're reminiscing and looking back through old group pictures from back in the day when you were, you know, growing up or whatever, who do we look for first? We don't look for little Timmy and we don't look for little Judy, right? We look for ourselves. We get that picture in front of us. It's like, all right, where am I in this picture? You know, don't look at me holy, right? Don't judge me. You've done this, right? And you want to find out what did I look like in this picture and where am I? And you're like gazing that whole picture, finding yourself. And then when you find yourself, you're just like, oh, look at Timmy. Look at what he wore. <laughs> look at Judy. Look at, you know, but you find yourself first. And that's reflective. I'm not saying that's necessarily a horrible thing. It's just a reflective thing that we think about ourselves typically first. We think about ourselves long before we think about other people often. It's just kind of in our DNA in a sense. It's a product of the fall, I guess, if you want to make it biblical, that we are selfish people who look out for ourselves usually above and beyond anyone or anything else. It's just the, the, the way we roll. It's where we gravitate towards is towards a self-centered perspective. Now, the counter to that is obviously self-sacrifice. And, and here's the thing about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is a life-changing concept when it's displayed by somebody else, right? I mean, we like those things on social media. Oh, this story about a guy or a lady, they just sort of sacrifice so much to help this person. I think I'm going to hit that heart and like this, right? We like that. Well, I might even make a comment. Oh, how wonderful. We love self-sacrifice. We, we glorify self-sacrifice. We celebrate self-sacrifice as long as it's demonstrated by somebody other than ourselves many times. But when it comes to us being the ones who sacrifice, here's the honest, here, just sort of the honest perspective. For many of us, when it comes to an attitude of self-sacrifice, we may dabble in it from time to time, but embracing it as a lifestyle, we would rather celebrate it in somebody else's life on their journey than to embrace it and to apply it in our life on our journey. So Paul is writing a letter here to a group of people in a city called Philippi. It's the letter to the Philippians there in the New Testament. Paul would write a number of letters from prison 
having been imprisoned, not because he did anything wrong except preach a gospel truth that ran counter to the culture that got him locked up in response. And so Paul is locked up in jail for preaching the gospel, and he would write a number of letters. They're called the prison epistles, right? But they're the prison letters that he authored from jail, basically, having been imprisoned for his obedience to preach the message of the gospel. One of those letters that he would author would be the letter called Philippians. Now, understand a little bit about the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was the first city in modern-day Europe where the gospel made it and where a church was planted. So when you think about hearing the gospel here in this country in which we live, if you were born and raised in America, if you're born and raised in Europe, really, uh, uh, the, the gospel made it to where you were partly because it made it to Philippi. And when it made it to Philippi, ultimately it would begin to spread over other parts of the world. But this is a transition place. Philippi, the first city in modern day Europe where the gospel would ultimately be embraced and where a church would be planted. Now, Philippi, another thing we have to know is that it was also a Roman colony back in the first century, right? In, 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 uh, in this particular setting, I mean, I mean, Rome ran the show. I mean, the, the Roman Empire had expanded to such an extent to where a vast majority of, the, of the, the, that modern world was run by the Roman Empire. Philippi was one of those cities. Philippi was a Roman colony. This is, this is really interesting that as a Roman colony, if you visited there, if you said, hey, we're going to pack our kids up, we're going to Disney World in Philippi, right? We're going to go see Mickey in Philippi. And you pack up the kids and load up the family truckster, and off you go to Philippi, what you're going to find there is that it's set up like Rome. I mean, it's like a little Rome, like a miniature Rome there. I mean, you're going to have all of the, you know, the, the, the same um, uh, platforms and monuments built to honor the emperor. The, the government structure is going to be the same. The day-to-day -day routine is going to be the same. You're going to have the marketplace, the, uh, the uh, agora. I mean, you're going to have all this same stuff. It's going to be just like you're in Rome. Now, hang on to that because we're going to come back to that truth in just a second. But Paul writes this letter to these little pockets of believers in the city of Philippi as they live out their faith in this godless city, this, this, this Roman powerhouse of a city. And he writes this letter. And as he writes this letter, he hits on a number of different topics. One overarching topic being joy, right, in our lives. But there are two verses in chapter 2 that that he makes mention of that would have had a huge application in their culture, in their context, living out their Christian walk in Philippi. But man, oh man, it has just the same application in our own culture and in our own lives today. So let's go ahead and jump in. Just these two simple verses. I've already, I've already bumped, right, punched them up, right, and, and just puffed them up. I mean, these verses, when they're applied, can literally make enormous changes in our relationships, marriages, relationships with kids, grandkids, strangers, enemies, friends, if they're applied. They're not magical. This is not a magical incantation, right? We don't just quote these two verses and then everything's fixed. I mean, it's biblical application and it takes two to do that. So let's go ahead and take a look at them and then we'll begin to break them down just a little bit further. Philippians chapter 2, let's jump in. Verse 3 and verse 4, if you're familiar with Scripture, read these like you're reading them for the very first time. So Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
I'm going to read those two verses again and just, just let them, just soak in them for just a moment. Do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul writes here, and he begins by speaking of selfishness. He says, do nothing. Not some things, not certain things when it's convenient. He says, do nothing from a perspective of selfishness. Now, selfishness is kind of a mental attitude, right, where we think about ourselves first, but it is also a heart attitude at the same time. It is a heart issue. When we think about selfishness, whether it's displayed in our own life or whether it's displayed in another person's life, kind of that heart attitude that runs perfectly with it, they're like partners in crime, would be the attitude of pride. So when you think about Satan, right, the enemy, when Scripture speaks of of him, and it tells not his beginning, he's a created being, God made him, God's sovereign over him. But when we think about his fall, what was it that he did that got himself in trouble? He got kicked out of heaven, right? Scripture tells us that. He got kicked out of heaven. He was ultimately has been opposed to God, to the work of God, to the people of God, the truth of God, the Word of God. The list goes on and on ever since then. But what was it that got him ultimately in a position of selfishness where he wanted to run the show? It was this attitude of pride that said, I want the worship that is only due to God. And it was that pride and it was that act, attitude of selfishness that was linked, right? They were linked together, again, as partners in crime to ultimately bring him down. When we understand that we come to place in our lives, whether it's displayed in marriage or in our relationships with coworkers or with friends or just at random times in our lives, if we come to a place where we realize, you know, man, that was... That was a selfish thing for me to do. Man, I'm just kind of selfish. That selfishness is linked to pride. And what Paul says here, he says to do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit. That word selfishness, by the way, in the Greek language, again, we, we have the English translation. The original letter that Paul wrote would have been written in, uh, in, the, in the Greek language. That, that Greek word is a Greek word, erethia, and it was used in the classical Greek I don't want to lose you here, but I think this is significant. It was only used one other time outside of Scripture in writing, in classical Greek, that word erethia, that we translate as selfishness. And the one time was in a writing by Aristotle when he was describing a guy who was trying to get elected to political office by means that were less than noble, right? He was trying to bend the rules to get elected so that he could have a position of influence and power, and he was willing to do whatever it took to get that. Aristotle pulled out of the air this Greek word erethia to describe that. And when Paul is writing this letter, he says in the same way you would look at someone like that and say, what a crook, right? What a scoundrel who would do whatever it took to get himself elected. Glad that doesn't happen today, right? That was only a problem 2,000 years ago. You would look at that person and say, what a scoundrel, what a crook who would do that. What a selfish thing to do. Paul says, well, be sure you don't have that same attitude yourself. He says, be sure you don't do things from that same perspective to where you put yourself first. Be sure when you walk through your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your dealings with people, just be sure, Paul says, that you don't do anything from that attitude of selfishness that is fueled from underneath by your own pride that makes you think you're better than everybody else. Do nothing, he says, from selfishness or empty 
conceit. And then he goes on to the remedy. And here's, here's where you just got to tighten the buckle because this is where it gets hard. He says, but with humility of mind. Remember, selfishness fueled by pride, all right? If we're going to be something different than that, it's going to have to be fueled by humility. It's cool how it all links, right? He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You will never regard other people as more important than yourselves unless you first embrace this attitude of humility. What is humility? Humility is not, is not thinking that you're nothing, right? It's not thinking uh, less of yourself. Humility is not, oh, I'm just a no good, you know, just a good for nothing, nobody. That, that's not humility. That's self-degradation, right? That's beating yourself down. God's made you a treasure. God's made you valuable. God created you. bear the fingerprints of your creator. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you've already been re-identified as a child of God, right? So you are incredibly valuable, Humility is not downplaying that and like crushing that and, and, and putting yourself down. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. As one person said, humility is just thinking of yourself less. <laughs> it's thinking about other people before you think of yourself. And what Paul says here is selfishness, push it away. Empty conceit where you want recognition, where you want glory, where you want to be the one who everybody sees, push that away. He says, replace that then with uh, uh, an understanding and a consideration and a regard that everybody else is more important than you are. And the only way you're going to get there is if you embrace humility. He goes on to say in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Let, let me pause there. Unless we were to begin to think, well, I guess I'm just not supposed to consider anything about myself. Paul's not saying that, right? The Bible doesn't say don't consider your life at all. Here's the thing. If, if I didn't place consider, or, or if you, let's just put this on you. If you didn't ever consider your life, you may just go about living life, right, doing whatever you want with no browns, or you smoke whatever you want, eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, treat people however you want, you do whatever you wanted, and that's going to end up in a train wreck, right? I mean, you have to place consideration on yourself. You have to consider, what is this choice going to do to me? What, 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 what is, where is this path going to lead me? If I make this decision, what are the implications for my life? We have to think through those things. Paul is not saying, never think about yourself. And I love the way it's worded here. He says, do not merely. He understands we need to look out for ourselves. We have to take inventory of our lives at times. We have to take a step back at times and be somewhat introspective and say, you know, where is my life right now? Where am I headed? What am I doing? What's driving me? Who am I? We need to do that. That's, that's healthy. If it's balanced, right? We don't want to do that all the time, but there has to be that healthy introspection where we're examining our lives. Paul says, don't only do that, however, where you're only looking out for your own personal interests. He says, but also for the interests of others. And don't forget that verse before, verse three, he says, and regard one another, regard others as more important than yourselves. You see, it's interesting because that phrase, my pleasure, circling back a little bit, my pleasure can be taken two different ways. I can either say my pleasure, meaning 
everything in my life is about my pleasure, right? You need to do what I want you to do so that I'll have pleasure in my life. You need to make me happy. And you need to say what I want you to say and do what I want you to do. And, and, and you're all here to just make me, you know, to, to be in a place where I'm comfortable in life. You can live life that way. You've probably known people that that's kind of the, you know, sort of the, the stance of their life. That's one perspective of my pleasure. Or we can look at it the right way and see our lives as being gifts that God's given us. And we are here ultimately to put other people before ourselves and to say, just like Chick-fil-A nailed it, man, it, it's my pleasure. So this, this is a big Chick-fil-A verse. I mean, this ought to be out of my right corporate headquarters. I might get a gift card. I mean, it's my pleasure. It's not about my pleasure. It is my pleasure to put you before me. And it is one thing to say that, but I, man, I'll tell you, it is a whole different ballgame. It may take a lifetime to learn to do this well. It's one thing to say it, it is much harder to apply it. That doesn't get us off the hook because we have to be willing to live with the consequences if we don't apply this. And what often happens if these verses are not applied is that you find yourself constantly in arguments with people that you love, constantly at odds with people that you care about, just not getting along with people, and you end up being that guy, right, that nobody else can get along with because you're too busy looking out for number one, which is a good thing as long as number one is rightly identified and it's not you. And for me, it's not me. So Paul rolls out in this letter a teaching that, as I said before at the beginning, is incredibly costly it will cost you to apply this because to literally live this out means we most of the time take our agenda and we lay it down and we embrace someone else's. Now, there are boundaries there, obviously. You don't lay down truth to embrace somebody else's faults, right? But we lay down our agenda, and in some cases, we sort of die to what we want in order to put another person and their interests in first place. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost. But I think we can all imagine how many marriages would have a lot more peace if both husband and wife embraced this mentality. That, you know what, I'm going to share my heart, but at the end of the day, you matter more than me. And you can probably imagine what it would be like in your workplace, wherever you may work, Probably most of you don't work in a Christian environment, right, where you have prayer at the beginning of the day and, you know, sing little hymns over lunchtime. You probably don't work in a place like that. Just imagine what it would be like if everybody in your workplace applied these two verses. Would there be more conflict or less? You don't even have to answer that out loud. Where the culture is that I'm going to put somebody else, I'm going to put you before me. It doesn't make you a doormat. It doesn't take away your voice. It's just a different way of living. And it's a different motivation for the way we live. And so Paul said very, very clearly, when it comes to selfishness, we do nothing from that motivation, but with humility of mind, we regard, we consider others as more important than ourselves. You know, it would be nice, Paul, if you could just give us a pattern. I mean, this is great teaching, but I mean, can you just give us a visual? 
you know, that, that would make it a little bit easier for me if I had a pattern, maybe kind of a model to follow. That's what he does in the next verse, verse 5. He says, so he's just said all these things. So he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, right, when he came to earth, he, he came as God. He didn't lay aside his deity. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't just prance around saying, hey, don't you know who I am? I'm God. Come on, get to serving me. Come on. That's not the way he lived when he walked this earth. He said, verse 7, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Are you kidding me? You could ask anybody who's not a, not a Christian. They, 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 may not, they, they, might not even, they, they may not follow Jesus. They may not care anything about following Jesus. But if you were to ask them, just think about uh, the concept of God, of a supreme being, right? Would it make sense that that God would be a bondservant? Nobody would agree with that. It was so countercultural to our nature, to our world of selfishness and, and getting glory and acclaim and all that. But when Jesus came as God, it says he did exactly the opposite. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled, there's that word again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Lord, what does it look like? If I'm going to consider my spouse's, uh, my, 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 I was going to say my spouse's opinion. That's not spouse's plural. Um, if I'm going to, <laughs> whew, if I'm going to, first day with my new lips. If I'm going to, uh, if I'm going to consider my spouse as more important than me, what does that look like? It looks a lot like Jesus. When he took a cross that he didn't deserve because he loves you. So God, what's it going to look like if I'm, you know my boss, Lord, right? You know my boss, uh, what's it going to look like if, if, if I'm going to apply this in my relationship with my boss? It looks a lot like Jesus who took a cross in your place. So how much different, let's don't worry about the world right now, how much different would life be under your roof, in your circle of friends, in your world, if this was what got applied starting today? And I understand it takes two, right? I understand that if one embraces this and the other doesn't, it's still probably going to be some friction. But I'll tell you, the one who gets this and understands it can probably lay their head down at night with a little bit of peace, more so than the one who is constantly pushing to be first. And when two of them get it, and it's you and that friend or you and that coworker or you and that spouse or you and that child or grandchild, when you both get it and apply it, Man, I don't think it takes a whole lot of time before peace reigns in that relationship and where it's at a whole different level than where it used to be. You know, I mentioned the significance of Philippi earlier. Philippi is a Roman colony. It would not have been uncommon to walk through the streets of that city and to see monuments built to the former or even current emperor of the Roman Empire. And those monuments were there as a testimony to self. It was a reminder, if you want to call it state religion, we'll call it state religion, but the state religion of the Roman Empire was emperor worship. It's what they did. It wasn't a worship of God as creator. It certainly wasn't a worship of Jesus. It was a worship of the emperor of that day. And so when Paul wrote this letter to these Christians, this little band of believers in the city of Philippi, they were living in a world where the norm was to worship some guy on a pedestal. And he was saying, don't do that. You know where that gets you. 
(laughs) You know where this leads. He said, be different. Because life is found when you do what your Savior did. And when you give up yourself and you give up your rights and you put another person before yourself. And so when we leave today, all of us have opportunity. This is one of those messages that's really easy to apply because you don't live in a vacuum. You're going to be around other people. You're, you're around other people right now. And you're going to continue to be the rest of today. And when you leave, here's my challenge for you, whether it's with your spouse or with your kids or with a coworker sometime or a friend or wherever it may be, or a total stranger when you go to chick well, they're closed on Sunday, when you go tomorrow, when you go with a total stranger, you can apply this. Consider them as more important than yourself. Embrace humility and see what happens next. And then get up again and do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And as you do, what you're doing is you're putting Jesus on display. And you're taking the necessary steps, ultimately, to have the peace that he came to give us in the first place. Now, I'll tell you, this is hard enough for a Christian to do, I would be willing to say it's nearly impossible for a person who doesn't have a relationship with God to do. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to lay down your sin that separates you from God, that's what Jesus died to pay for. And if you've never invited Jesus literally, genuinely to come and to forgive you and to take over your life, trusting him alone for salvation, hey, right where you sit today, you can make that decision. And if you're willing to say, you know what, God, I'm tired of living for self. This is what salvation is at its essence anyway. Lord, I'm tired of living for myself I want to turn from myself and my sin and trust Jesus alone to forgive me and take over. And if you've never done that right where you sit today, you pray a prayer like that and he will hear you, not because it's magical words, but because he takes over the life that's yielded to him by faith. And if you've already done it, hey, apply that same faith. Take the hard step, live in accordance with his word and see what he does in response. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that um, uh, it's so incredibly clear at times. And Lord, we come to verses like this, and again, everything I said 30 minutes ago at the outset, that if we understand and really apply these two verses, it will eliminate virtually all of the, the drama and the mess on social media if people treated each other like this. Lord, in a funny way, it would probably take away all of the, the, the political ads that we see as you know, people just sort of promote themselves and push down the other guy. But Lord, it would definitely, in the worlds where we live, bring about healthier, more peaceful relationships with our friends and our coworkers and, and even maybe with our enemies and definitely under our own roofs with our own families. If God, we, if we can just embrace humility and regard those around us as more important than we are. Lord, it takes faith to do that. Sometimes it may be frightening to do that because we think, well, if I don't stand up for myself, who is? If I don't jump in there and get what I want or get what I feel like I deserve, then then, then how am I ever going to get it? Lord, it takes faith to put another person before ourselves. And Lord, it, we but we can we can trust that when we do that, Lord, you're you're going to give us what we need. You're enough for us. And so why not push down self and push up another? So God, give us the strength to do that. And and when we come to those times, Lord, in our relationships where we may be tempted to just sort of put ourselves out front and aim for what we want, Lord, help us to remember these two verses. If it takes remembering Chick-fil-A to remember, whatever it takes, remind us. It's not about 
It's not about getting what we want. Lord, looking out for number one means identifying the other person as number one. And so God, for those that have that really need that today in, in their marriage or relationships, God, give them the courage to apply it. Lord, give me the courage to apply this in my life, in all of my relationships with other people. And God, I pray as well for those who don't know you today that you give them the courage to lay down themselves and to surrender their lives to Jesus. So bless now our decisions, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together this morning as we sing our song of invitation or time of decision. You follow as God leads if you have a decision to make. And we'd love to hear about it. You can check a box on that connection card. If you want to slip out and come pray down front, you can do that. If you just want to worship the Lord, you sing as Adam leads us this morning. You follow. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to forward for us to collect our offering. Guys, you can come on now, uh, if you will. If you filled out a connection card, you can drop that in the plate uh, as it comes by. Many of you give consistently here, and uh, your giving really helps us to do a lot of ministry. Some of some of our folks, we're going to close our service in a moment, uh, commissioning our Cuba mission team. And uh, a lot of you gave, right, to help some of those team members to make that trip. You got our weekly newsletter we sent out uh, this weekend, and it mentioned something called the uh, Good News Club there at May Howard that our church takes part in and leads. Some of you volunteer in that. Uh, we're able to do that in a lot of ways because you give, and those provide resources for us to go into our own community and to make a difference in the lives of people. And so your giving makes a difference. And let's pray and ask God right now, if we could, just to bless what we give still again today. God, we thank you for the way that you share your resources with us. God, everything we have belongs to you. Um, 
if not ours, if you were to take your hand off of it, we'd realize real quickly um, how little we have. God, it's all yours, but you bless us by putting resources in our lives, finances and places to live and things to drive and relationships, and the list goes on and on of how you bless us. But God, you also calls, call us to be good managers of those blessings. And part of that good management is giving back to you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we do that today, that you'd bless it and that you'd use it, help our church to see a lot of ministry, many lives impacted through what's given still even today. And we glorify you. We praise you for all that you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.